And thanks, Shay. If you want to keep um, that passage there open for you, you might find that um, helpful. Before we kind of get to these verses, I guess it's important to, to address the thing that's, that's underneath a passage like this. And um, what we'll think about this morning especially is, is that Jesus comes to save us from sin. But I, I guess it's worth um, first at least thinking about what the problem of sin is. Why would it be something that's so serious here that Jesus would have to come to save us uh, from it? And there's lots of ways, perhaps, that we might be able to, to think about this. But this passage raises three particular ones for us. So I'll use those for us. Firstly, the problem of sin is it's a dissatisfaction with God's purpose for our life. It's that we don't really want to sacrifice. We kind of want to save ourselves that's the kind of human position and condition isn't it that we're always fighting that i don't really want to sacrifice that i really actually want to kind of save myself why should i have to go without don't i know a bit better what i need or how i should live and yet our purpose is to enjoy and to glorify god but i or at least that within me that still struggles wants to really use my life to enjoy myself and to glorify myself paul puts it like this in romans chapter one that although they knew god they didn't honor him as god or give thanks to him that's one aspect of sin that it's a dissatisfaction with god's purpose a refusal to honor him it's like if you can imagine you know the movie karate kid it's like daniel's son turning on mr miyagi believing he knows more he knows better. He doesn't need him anymore. He'd be better off without him. That maybe he'd be freer without his control. It's being dissatisfied with God's purpose for our life. Secondly, there's this aspect of it being a, a dissatisfaction with where God has put us, with what's given us, with our place and our position. That temptation to feel there might be something better for me outside of God. And outside of the place that he's put me, there might be somewhere, something beyond him that might give me something that he can't quite give me. It's in Genesis 3, that's Adam and Eve are first tricked. You know, they realise that the fruit is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. And the serpent says, you will like him. There's something here you can get through me that God is not willing to give you. It's like little Charlie Bucket turning around at the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and turning to Willy Wonka and saying, even though he's given him the chocolate factory, and, but somehow feeling as though he's held out on him. He's, he's held something back. That somehow there was something better that he could have had, despite all that he's been given. And thirdly, it's about a dissatisfaction with the sort of posture of service that God calls us to. I don't really so much want to serve, I want to be served, or I want to serve myself. I'm not really content for my life to be about anyone or anything beyond or outside of myself. I really would like for it to all be about my happiness. Isn't that the message of the world around us? <laughs> it's kind of all about what works for you. I mean, it's Adam and Eve's grasping up at trying to be God to take equality with God the same equality that Jesus is willing to let go of it's Darth Vader 
turning on those who've trained him, those who've invested in him, turning on his people to form his own kingdom, to have his own power. It wasn't enough to be a Jedi, wanted to have the dark side of the force to have power. It's not enough to serve. I want to be in charge. I must be in charge of my life, no matter the collateral. You see, sin isn't really about actions. You could sin doing almost anything, really, actually, even good things. So sin isn't really about actions like the world thinks. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why Jesus would have to come to save us from it. Because the thing is, if it's just about actions, then I might be able to turn around and say, well, I may have made mistakes, but I'm not sure if I've really sinned. I'm not sure if I've really done stuff that's really that bad. Have I? But sin is about this posture, this attitude, this heart, your motivations, so that it's all pervasive, so that everybody is affected by it. You can't escape it. You can't be without it. None of the Easter story or Jesus's life or really the rest of the Bible after Genesis chapter three makes any sense without at least some sort of understanding of some of those aspects. Why is it such a big problem? Um, the previous section in Mark's gospel here, really the point was about the only way to really be rich is to die to wealth. So Jesus will tell them that, uh, that they're to give up the home there to give up their lands the way of life to follow him but that in the age to come they'll receive you know all of that back and more the only way to really be rich is to not really be so focused on trying to become rich and if that's what the point of that last passage was the point of this passage this morning is that the only way to really live is to die to die to yourself the only way you can die and then live is by god living and dying and then living again for you so let's look in these first few verses here, 32 to 34, and we see that idea of that purpose in life here, that purpose of sacrifice uh, in Jesus's life here, in this unwelcome prophecy. This is now uh, the beginning of the journey towards the cross. This is really, if you like, a little bit of the background and preamble to the journey up to Jerusalem and, and the triumphal entry of, of Palm Sunday uh, that will come sort of next week. And Jesus here gives now his third and by far the most detailed sort of prophecy of all that's going to happen to him and the purpose for which he's come. And it's fallen on deaf ears for, for, for large part. But in chapter 8 verse 31 he's uh, given a prophecy after Jesus's confession of you are the Christ. He's told them well this is what I've come to do. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. That he's going to be rejected. Chapter 9, verse 31, again as well, as they're just passing through Galilee, Jesus tells him he's going to be killed, he'll rise again, he'll be delivered up to that fate. And now we get by far the most sort of detailed uh, description of uh, what is going to happen to him and the purpose that he's come for uh, uh, with them. Verse 32 here, we're told they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Mark's giving us now much more details than the other sort of gospel writers and the other prophecies. We're even getting some of the sort of circumstantial details uh, around it here. He's walking ahead of them just as a rabbi would, would normally do and his disciples following along after him. And he's leading them up to Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. So, you know, in some ways, a very normal, typical traditional sort of journey that would happen. Jerusalem was always set on a hill so from whatever direction you came from it would always be uh, going up to Jerusalem but there's something about it in using those words so in one sense you could say going up to Jerusalem a bit of an irrelevant detail perhaps because you're always 
going up the hill to Jerusalem. But there's something of the sense of going up to Jerusalem, you know, for the pilgrimage each year. And there's specific psalms and things as well and songs of praise that, you know, would be sung along the way. And that's some of the backdrop to next week with, with Palm Sunday of, of all that sort of uh, happening there. And then it, those praises being turned to, to Jesus. And they were amazed, we're told here. And the word is like uh, being made speechless, dumbfounded. You don't really know what to say. And those who followed were afraid. They were amazed and afraid. Why? Is it about what Jesus had said in the last chapter? I mean, you know, what he'd said in the last chapter uh, about sacrificing everything to follow was, was, was pretty astounding. <laughs> I imagine enough to, to leave you really sort of thinking about it. And was it perhaps that? Or was it a growing sort of sense of anticipation of, you know, what is to come? And now taking the 12 aside, Jesus sort of explains this further. He tells him the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's going to be completely and utterly rejected by his own people and even killed by Gentiles too. And perhaps their reaction now makes, makes more sense as being in sort of response to what Jesus says here that now this statement of all that's going to happen to him, pretty shocking, pretty pretty horrific, really, leaves them not really knowing what to say and being a bit afraid. Perhaps afraid, wondering, will they get caught up in this? What's going to happen to them? There must also surely be a bit of amazement that Jesus says all this, and, it, and it's awful, isn't it? And yet, he's confidently determinedly striding out into this he knows this is happening and he's not walking away from it he's not hesitating as he walks towards it he's confidently striding towards this purpose it's pretty amazing isn't it really and there's something so amazing about Jesus' claim here. It's so accurate to what happens. So accurate that some people have wondered whether this was a sort of post-edit, you know, that someone's come along in the gospel afterwards and fitted this claim of Jesus together to make it clearly fit the pattern of the gospel there. Well, I think it might well be that Jesus actually is very clearly reflecting upon Psalm 22, a psalm that he quotes when he's on the cross, you know, the famous bit where we'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Comes from Psalm 22. But a lot of the things that happened to him, uh, ultimately in his death, are prophesied in Psalm 22. We're told in there uh, that all who see me will mock me, that they'll say he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. It'll tell us that he's poured out like water, that his tongue will stick to his jaw, that dogs will encompass him and evildoers will be surrounding him that his hands and feet will be pierced, that onlookers will stare and gloat over him, and that those around will divide his garments and cast lots for them. All of those things are predicted in Psalm 22 and all are then seen in the gospel accounts. It doesn't have to be that it's so accurate and neat that somebody added it in after. It might just well be that Jesus knew his scriptures and was reflecting upon that and all of his prophecy comes from being aware of that and knowing that 
that was speaking of him. He's asked the disciples previously in verses 29 to 31 to, to sacrifice. But now he's showing that he's not asking them to do something that he doesn't do himself. It's one of the things I really love about Jesus, that he never asks us to do something that he hasn't done and that he doesn't show us, you know, what that looks like. He's come to sacrifice himself, to follow God's purpose for his life. And then secondly, we see this unwise request here, verses 35 to 40 here, and it deals with that idea of place and position and we'll be willing to submit to the place and the position that God gives us. James and John, the sons of Zebedee's, come up to him. Actually, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 20, we hear that actually their mum is with them as well, and that it's actually their, their mum who first kind of brings this question to them with the sons kind of following along. Here in, in Mark's account, and actually in Matthew's too, actually Jesus speaks directly to, to the two boys, to the to the two men because it's the son's question isn't it really and to some extent they're hiding behind their mum in order to ask the question that they've come up with they've just sort of sent her out to do that not a particularly uh sort of <laughs> his two guys asking essentially to be able to to rule over the earth uh, and they're having to get the mum to, to come and ask the question to jesus um, maybe there's some irony in, in the way that they're not able even themselves really to, to, to verbalise it. They say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Asking him for a, a sort of blank check here, just do whatever we'll ask of you here. Now, why do they do this? Well, two things that come to my mind at least. Either, firstly, they think they have some leverage on Jesus. That is, they think that somehow he might owe them. Do you know that they can call that in at some point? They can call in a favour that he owes and he'll have to just say yes because he owes it to them, you know, a bit like the Godfather. Or there's a sense in which they kind of already know that Jesus might reject this request. So if they can put it in the sort of frame it in terms of, well, we want you to do whatever we would ask of you first. They can perhaps avoid some of that. Maybe that's why they use their mum that they sense maybe it'll be harder for Jesus to say no to our mum than to us maybe he'll find it sort of harder to to do that when than with us because you know he'll want to be respectful all of this comes together just to tell us though that I think they probably already know that this wasn't the best thing to ask and yet they're going to do it anyway Grant us to sit at your right hand and one in your left in your glory, they ask. Jesus spoke about the sort of sacrifice of discipleship in the last sort of section, verses 23 to 31. And then in these last few verses we looked at, sort of 33 to 34, he's talked about his own personal sacrifice uh, that he's making as our saviour and their saviour. <laughs> and they're still thinking of ruling. It means they've not really understood, or, or perhaps at best, perhaps they've latched on to the sort of very last bit of Jesus's prophecy that after three days he'll rise. And so they think, well, this could be the moment that Jesus brings the kingdom, that he restores things, that he brings new era of you know, prosperity and health and uh, everything else. Will this now be that moment, the moment that's talked about in Isaiah 61? 
or maybe it's a sense of you know they have these privileged positions next to Jesus now we read of John one of the sons of Zebedee being the disciple whom Jesus loved whose uh, pictures in you know Leonardo da Vinci's uh, famous painting of the Last Supper is uh, you know lying next to Jesus close by him and maybe the hope is well can we keep these sort of positions you know whenever the the kind of new restored kingdom comes and then look at Jesus's response here verse 38 you don't know what you're asking and I think that's probably a bit of an understatement isn't it you don't really understand what you're asking of me here are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized do you really think that you can do what I do what I will do and so they said to him we're able there's some sort of delusions of grandeur here, isn't there? They really think that they can, and they're really wrong. Based on their performance sort of so far, uh, and the way that they run in the sort of immediate aftermath of Jesus's arrest, the chances don't look very good for them, do, do they, really? Um, I don't think you'd want to bet too much money on them that they really will be able to drink the cup that Jesus drinks. But... All of these little things are really important. Let me give you just a cu couple of reasons why. And they really add to the legitimacy of the story of Easter. Firstly, it shows that the story is real. Because all of these little things where people say daft things and do daft things show that this is what really happened. Because if you were the disciples and you were creating this story, and you knew that Jesus didn't rise, but you were creating this because that was, you know, what you wanted to happen. You would airbrush this out. You would make yourself look better, wouldn't you? You wouldn't include the moments where you look really bad. So it shows us the story's real. But secondly, it shows us that God's spirit is real. Because these men who are cowards become courageous for the gospel in just a short space of time. And really, it's only God that can make changes like that in our lives, isn't it? Whether they understood all of what Jesus has said, I, almost certainly not. He talks about this cup that I drink. The cup was often a metaphor in scripture for God's wrath and judgment uh, being poured out upon human sin and rebellion. And Jesus here is saying, though he's the heir of all things coming to earth and he's giving up his position there of being in heaven, at least for a time to come and to live with us, live as one of us, to live for us, to face God's wrath for our sin and rebellion against him. It's an amazing thing. And yet, you know, they will drink, he says, you will drink the cup from which I drink, you will be baptized. They won't face God's wrath in the same way as Jesus, but each of the disciples will, of course, actually die as, as martyrs for the gospel eventually and again they will go from being very cowardly to very courageous in a short space of time but Jesus says here verse 40 to sit at my right hand isn't mine to grant it's for those for whom it's been prepared and there's this real contrast in Jesus and his disciples here that whilst the disciples are already kind of beginning to jockey and, and maneuver for positions at the table in the new kingdom you know, a bit like a political party when one leader is 
kind of on their way out, but maybe not even quite gone yet. You know, you start to see people kind of come forward and sort of say stuff and they're trying to make sure they have a position in the new kind of regime. But Jesus, the son of God, the heir of all things, who rule the new kingdom, of all people, the person that you think would be the one who could get you on the list, is willing to submit to his father. It's not mine to grant. That is, it's the father's to grant. And he's content with that place and position. Jesus was saying, that's, that's not my place and my position to decide that. That's, that's the father's and I'm happy with that. He's content. What a contrast between the two. Jesus shows he's content to submit and to trust in his father. And then thirdly here, we get this undesirable calling. It's all about that sort of idea of, of that posture of service. Look at the reaction here of the disciples, verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other ten are angry with them both. Why were they angry? Why were they indignant? Well, might I sort of, sort of uh, hazard a guess here that they were angry perhaps that James and John might have, if Jesus had said yes, secured favour ahead of them, might have secured favour over them. There might have been a sense of, why didn't we think of that? But also now we're kind of glad we didn't because obviously that was the wrong question to ask. I'm not sure that the other disciples were necessarily any better. I'm sure they were probably relieved they weren't the ones to have asked it. But on the other hand, annoyed that the other two had thought to ask it ahead of them, that they might have got a position ahead of them and over them. So hearing the bickering, Jesus kind of calls them together to correct them all here and to correct this sort of wayward view of greatness and leadership. Listen to what he says here, verse 42. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And in a way, the disciples sort of wanted that too, even though it's something that they really obviously didn't like when the Gentiles were lording it over them. They sort of wanted it for themselves, at least a little bit. We see some of that lording over in some of the coins from the time um, that will show there's a, a set of coins made by Herod Philip at Caesarea Philippi. Um, that, that place is significant because Jesus and the disciples spend a lot of time there. A number of them are from that area and a lot of Jesus's ministry is in and around that area. So they'd have been familiar with these coins. And on the coin, it shows the ruling emperor with the inscription, he who deserves adoration. The world has this view and image of leadership and of greatness, that it's something that's lorded over people and kind of forced out of people. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. Jesus, interestingly here, I think doesn't completely dismiss ambition. Whoever would be great, whoever would be first. It's not that ambition totally is dismissed. It's not. But he shows that the route to greatness is a road less travelled. It's very different to the road that the world around us encourages us to take, isn't it? 
And the difference here in this kind of service, it's not just about acts of service, but a posture of service. We all know, of course, that there's a difference there, that sometimes you can actually do things that are acts of service, but actually it's sort of all about you, really, isn't it? I mean, is that what they call virtue signalling and things on social media, isn't it? That, that sometimes uh, we all know it's, it's, it's a little bit to sort of show off. So it's not just about the things that we do, but it's why we do it, isn't it? It's about that, that posture, what motivates us. That all that I do is done with a focus, not on myself, but towards Jesus, towards the church, towards the culture around us. The great commandments to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbour. The great commandment that Jesus gives to love one another as a church, to love your brother and your sister, and also to go and to make disciples of all nations, the Great Commission. All of those things rolled in together to love one another, to love our neighbours out beyond us, to love our church family, and also to love uh, the whole world. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are not two separate things, but service is seen most clearly in Jesus's act of sacrifice. So that the cross is a supreme act of service. I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. As a ransom from what? Well, from sin. And that's why we sort of began just by thinking about that uh, this morning. We will not quite understand it until we see the, the problem of sin, the extent of it. Here, Paul gives us uh, uh, a few insights into this in Romans chapter six of just how um, significant this is, how much it holds us. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus gives his life as a ransom to free us from Satan, from sin and from death. There's a famous story um, in the 1970s of uh, a rather less impressive sort of ransom. Uh, John Paul Getty III was a uh, grandson of the famous sort of oil um, billionaire, uh, but he was something of an embarrassment to his family. He's been kicked out of several schools. He actually struggled with having grown up in such a wealthy family. He didn't always feel very comfortable with it uh, and struggled with uh, his, his father not, not being uh, sort of with him, having sort of moved on with several marriages and things. And in 1973, he was abducted uh, in Rome and held hostage for some time. And his father claimed he couldn't pay uh, the ransom that was requested of $17 million dollars uh, for him to be sent back. His grandfather is quoted as having said, I have 14 grandchildren. If I pay one penny now, I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. 
And so um, John Paul Getty sent a desperate letter along with those from his uh, captors saying, I will do whatever you want from now on. And it was almost as if he had to prove that he was worth saving to his family and was begging for their help. It was only after five months of being held and the receipt of his ear that had been cut off that the grandfather finally did agree to pay a ransom, but not after haggling them down to $2.2 million, which he then required his grandson to repay to him at 4% interest. This is not at all like that kind of ransoming. Jesus is a willing sacrifice for us. What a contrast. God the Father sends his faithful son for us, his wayward children, and Jesus, our good big brother, gives himself up to set us free, giving his life as a ransom price for us. The response of God to all of our sin against him that so affects us and others and the world around us is to save us. So that we could ask, does he care about suffering of the world? Well, yes. He cares enough for him to suffer, to end suffering that all ultimately comes from the brokenness of the world through sin. Jesus comes to save us from sin. Jesus comes and he counters all of our sin and rebellion, all of our dissatisfaction and dissension. He comes to do this so that we might so that he might offer himself to set us free. Jesus submits to his father's purpose for him to serve his father and to serve us by sacrificing himself. Philippians 2 verse 8 we read at the beginning that being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus accepts the position and the place that God had given for him and doesn't see it as a thing to cling on to or to snatch to get hold of. Instead, he freely lets go of his place and his position in heaven for a time to come and to save us. Philippians 2 verse 6 told us, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And Jesus came with a posture throughout his life of a servant that he might serve his father and serve us. And you see this throughout his ministry in the things he does, but most of all in that he becomes a man. Philippians 2 verse 7 told us that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus came to save us from sin, not just as a moral example, though he is, of course, the greatest of examples, but to defeat Satan and his claims over us, to free us from the power of sin and to face the judgment of God so we don't have to. So that the way to truly live is to know the one who died, that we may live and to live as we were always made to, sacrificing ourselves Maybe for us, that's not on the cross, but perhaps that's to our own desires, our own ambitions, our own comfort, perhaps at times. Submitting to his will and serving him and others. Let's pray and then we'll uh, sing again together. Father God, we thank you that you were willing to give your son for us that you might set us free 
we thank you, Lord, that unlike that stingy and miserly father who didn't really want to part with his money and maybe wasn't so sure if he wanted to save his own flesh. Lord, even though we've done so many stupid things against you, Lord, you've willingly sent your son to come and to live and to die for us, to save us from our sin, to be a ransom for us. Wayward though we are, you love us so greatly that you would do that. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross for us, to save us from sin, to save us from that kind of slavery and just being trapped in the same cycle of, of sin and death. Help us, Lord, as we think to what it means then to, to truly live, to truly follow you, to live uh, not in sin, but in, in righteousness. Then, Lord, help us as we look to you to live our lives, willing to sacrifice ourselves, to, to be willing to sacrifice our ambitions at times that are not always right. And at times, Lord, I just are kind of comfort and you know sometimes just desire for me to want to make life uh i don't know all about getting the the things i want lord help us help me lord to be able to like you to sacrifice ourselves for you for others lord help us to be willing to submit to you and to trust you in the place and the position that you give us uh, the people that you've put us around the opportunities that you have given us sometimes it can be so easy to look to things we don't have or to imagine that things that we don't have are things that we really desperately need to be happy but lord you've given us all that we need at any moment help us Lord, to be uh, content with all that you've given to know that all that we have is a, a gracious and generous gift from you and lord help us to be able to be willing like you to to take that posture of, of servant to serve you in, in all that we do, um, in all of our living, our working and our resting and our playing and our uh, family time and with friends and, and everything, Lord, to, to just be able to serve you and Lord, to serve others. Lord, help us to be um, willing and, and happy to kind of take up that role, to be willing to um, do what's needed at uh, points Lord and help us to see where those opportunities are Lord for us to um, to do those I ask but Lord we pray that uh, not only giving thanks for all that you've done for us but that you might help us to um, to follow you and to um, to live like you and we pray for your uh, spirit's help Lord that we might be able to do that Lord especially to those around us who, who don't know you yet that we might be able to serve them and give ourselves sort of for them and to share the hope uh, that we have in you thank you Lord this morning that however many mistakes we may have made and however bad they may have been that Lord this morning you offer forgiveness you offer salvation you offer new life and Lord I pray that for each of us we would we would know that and know that you've given that for us not just like for others or for people but specifically you've done that for us so we thank you for all that you've given us i pray lord now as we sing together again we might 
give you glory for all that you've done as you rightly deserve. Amen.